0: so great to be able to spend this time together with you. I know it's not ideal, but from all we're understanding, this might be going on for a while. So sit back, relax, and uh, I think this is going to be the new normal. I'm really excited this morning. We're going to be starting a new series called Hidden Glory, and it's based on the book of Esther. I don't know if you've ever read this book, but it's a fascinating book that, can, that kind of uh, captures your attention from the very beginning. And so I encourage you actually to start reading this book on your own. And then as we go through it in the coming weeks, you'll really be able to track uh, all that we're we're working through together. This book was written um, referring to a time that is about 100 years after the Babylonians sent the Jews into exile. After that time, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and Medes. And this story is about a king during that time and what happened with two primary figures from the Jewish community. And so let's jump into the story and uh, we'll kind of explain things as we go along. I want to read a little bit more than usual today just because the story is so fascinating. It's so well written. It just uh, is worth reading. So we'll uh, cut out some parts but uh, but let's follow along together so at that time King Xerxes so he's the the king at that time reigned from his royal throne in the Citadel of Susa and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials what he was wanting to do here is his father had tried to conquer Athens and didn't succeed so his plan was to gather all of his nobles together throw them a huge party and garner favor for them to attack again the city of Athens. And so for a full 180 days, 180 days, so that's a six-month party. I mean, there's there's parties and then there's parties. Uh, For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So King Xerxes is holding nothing back. He is displaying to these people, just how great and mighty he is. Uh, And we're going to see that as being a contrast for how God is operating in this story. But we'll get to that in a moment. When the days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So he did one banquet for six months that was for all of his nobles and then for seven days for the city that he was living in. And uh, then the passage goes on to describe just how extravagant this party was. Um, Gold goblets and and, and wine that, that flowed, and it just goes on and on. The only time in the Bible that something is described in a more extravagant way is when the temple is described. So this is second only to the temple that was in Jerusalem. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. Now, when we hear that, we think that this was just some kind of, you know, everybody's getting drunk. Well, what they believed back then, I know it's strange to uh, to think, but what they believed back then is that if you were uh, intoxicated, that actually opened you up to the spirit world and you would be able to gain more spiritual wisdom. So this wasn't just a sign of irresponsibility. This was a sign of kind of getting in touch with another world to hear, uh you know, what needs to be done. So that's just an interesting thought. But uh, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So this is all part of his kind of selling features of, of, of all the grandeur, including uh, the queen. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So, you know, this whole thing that he's setting up is not going the way that he imagined. He's really upset about this. So he consults his wise men, and this is what they say. We pick it up in verse 16. Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and, picking up in verse 18, there will be no end of disrespect and and discord. So, they wrote a decree that Vashti is to be exiled and that, get this, every man should be ruler over his own household. I mean, this is a a huge insight into how they ran the kingdom and what King Xerxes, uh, in the way that he kind of exercised his power, is he's saying, not only do I want to be all-powerful, but I'm going to command all the men. I mean, it's just hard to say out loud, but I'm going to command all the men that they're to rule their households, otherwise known as their wives. So that's just what it was like back then. Now, we pick up the story four years later In chapter two, we'll start with verse two, the king's personal attendance. And again, now this is the this is characteristic of the king. So the king looks really powerful and majestic. But what we notice through the whole story is that he never actually makes any decisions on his own. He just usually throws a temper tantrum and then all the people around him scramble, come up with a good idea for for him, and then he kind of does what they say. So it's kind of like this uh, this this mock power. Uh, For sure, he's the ruling king, but he's ruling in a way that actually is just almost like a puppet to the people around him. Anyways, this is what his personal um, attendants propose. Let a search be made for for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jar, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish." Now, uh, what this is telling us is that this person named Mordecai is actually a descendant of King Saul, who was the first king over Israel. Now, if you know the story, King Saul was not a great king. Uh, David became a king after him. He was kind of the great king in the history of, of Israel. But King Saul, that first king, he was not a great king. So uh, the storyteller is associating Mordecai with the king who did not lead Israel well. It's interesting. We'll find the significance of that as we go on in the story. But the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So he's basically a slave. There's not only is his lineage not great, but he's a slave sent into exile uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Mordecai, in verse 7, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, the, the young women, were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Uh, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. So, I mean, it's just, first of all, it's incredibly demeaning of women. And then it really sets up this idea that the kingdom was all about kind of uh, image and Underneath it could be all corrupt. Nobody is caring about that. But it was all about the image. And even how the queen is being chosen has very little to do with who she really is as a person and just what she looks like. So, uh, in verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, here's where the big contrast comes in this book. We've already seen uh, throughout chapter 1 and 2, and we'll see it throughout the whole book, that King Xerxes and the, uh, the kingdom that he rules is all about, there's nothing hidden. There's everything is pomp and circumstance and flaunting his wealth. And uh, it's all this superficial image that's going on. And then we see, in contrast to that, this hiddenness. There's another story being told that isn't very visible. So, uh, so Mordecai is telling Esther, don't reveal all that you are and who you are, especially your ethnicity. Don't do that. That's not wise at this time. Now, after a year of body treatments, so Esther goes through this, uh, this long process of, of, of being beautified. Uh, it says in verse 15, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And then, uh, so now she is taken to be with the king. After she spent a night with the king, it says Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Verse 21. During the time Mordecai, so that's the, the story told. Now it kind of flashes forward. And then during the, the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Uh, So this implies that Mordecai had kind of worked himself up in society and had a place of of prominence in the city. Uh, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. So uh, Mordecai ends up saving the king it 's an amazing story, and this kind of sets him up for something that 's going to be happening in the future that 's really significant but let 's make a few observations about what 's gone on so far in the story first of all we 've already said it that the king flaunts his power and glory and uses it for self serving purposes this is This is classic king Xerxes he 's constantly displaying his uh who he is to everyone around him and rules the world with uh his world with great control that leads to point number two that the whole social structure is about control even against women and exploiting them so we see a a whole country that's really um, uh, perverted in its understanding of justice and how to value the members of society. It's not great. Then we find that neither Esther nor Mordecai are described as devout. You would expect, so now we have this kind of evil kingdom, and then you would expect that the Jews in the story would be of particularly high regard. But we see that the way that uh, Mordecai was presented is He might have a, a position of influence, but it's not because he was a devout Jew. It's actually insinuated that he probably was more compromising in his commitment to the Jewish law. And then we find that Esther is the same way, that she's actually going to be sleeping with a Gentile, which would, of course, be, you know, talk about breaking the Jewish law. There, there, there could be nothing really worse than that, aside from idolatry. And so they're hiding their nationality. The way that they live is, is is not as devout Jews. So what's going on here? Well, it gets even more profound when we look at our final point, that actually God is never mentioned in the whole book. You have a whole book in the Bible where God is not referenced even once. So This sets up a very fascinating dynamic, that you have a very kind of loud and in-your-face kingdom, and then you have something else that's going on in the background that's very hidden. This, I think, looks a lot like our reality. Uh, We have ungodly political leaders. I mean, some people are doing great things, of course, but when you look at the leadership of the world and... And the decisions that people are making, it's often not great and not advancing the kingdom of God uh, sobering. And then you have social evil. And we, in this time, we see it probably in a more poignant way than we have for quite a while, where there is social unrest because of the great evil and atrocities that are happening in our society. That it's not just somewhere else, it's in our backyard, in our own lives, and so we see social evil around us. And we also see compromising Christians. We see in lots of ways that the church is not all that God has designed her to be. That it's, uh, it's sobering when we look at the state of the church sometimes and we say, so this is God's people? Like, this is as good as it gets? And so it's easy to look at, uh, at the church, to look at society, to look at leadership, and to get very discouraged, and it can kind of be like, "Where is God in all of this?" Uh, we worship a God who is who who rules sovereignly, but it's hard to see Him being that way, isn't it? it his His presence doesn't look evident. It's kind of like my uh, my wife had a prophetic word for somebody this week and i really liked it because it feels as though it it fits what's going on in the book of esther that life can feel like a um, a puzzle and we don't have the 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 box cover to know how all the pieces fit together it 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 seems as though the the big picture is hidden from our sight, and all we're left with is a bunch of puzzle pieces and we can't quite see how they all fit together I think this can feel like our life, can it? That we we want to follow God. We want to cooperate with what he's doing, but he doesn't seem to be talking much. He doesn't seem to be making himself very clear. And so perhaps one of the biggest struggles that we have is is when we pray and and we ask for things specifically and it doesn't look like they're happening. and, And where is God in all of this? And so we we try to be responsible and we, we try to be devout, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to live our lives in response to a God that we can't see, that seems hidden in so many ways. The Where this leads us is that it becomes easy to believe that what we see is all that is there. Now, follow me on this. it. it it's very easy to go into a mindset that simply lives in response to what our eyes see. And so we see the the social unrest, we see decisions that are being made by uh, political powers, we see what's going on in the church, and we make judgments about what's really going on simply by what our eyes see. But, we must look deeper. Now, there's a, uh, there's a book that I, I, I read to my kids. It's called The Magic Bicycle. It's a children's story, and it's about a young boy named John who went to the dump one day and found a bicycle. And it turns out that this bicycle was magic. And among other things, it could fly. And so uh, he discovers this during the course of the story, and he's flying in the air. And I mean it's a a children's fairy tale so he's he's flying in the air and uh and then there's a big snake a huge snake that kind of you know fills up most of the sky is chasing after him trying to get him attack him and so he sees this and uh as he's panicked he looks down and he's actually flying over top of his grandfather's house and so he points the bike down lands in the in the grandfather's yard runs into the barn for safety and meets his grandfather there and so we pick up the story i want to read a little bit of this uh of the story we pick up the story when he's he's talking to his grandfather in the barn grandfather kramer walked over to his old red tractor from under the seat he pulled out a pair of goggles such as an old-time airplane pilot would wear the old man said let's go to the window John followed his grandfather over to the window of the workshop, then carefully peeked outside. He's nervous because there was this huge snake that had attacked him. But the sky was clear and blue. And John said, I don't see anything. Look deeper, Grandfather Kramer said. Deeper? John asked. How can I look deeper? What do you mean? I will put these goggles on you, Grandfather Kramer said. I think you will be able to see. These are special goggles, John. And if you do see, you will never in all your life forget what you see. Now close your eyes. Grandfather Kramer said, I'll put these goggles on you, but keep your eyes closed. Then when I tell you, I want you to open your eyes, but only for a second. One glance will be enough. But I can already see through the goggles, John said, seeing his grandfather's hand behind the dark glasses. You are only seeing the surface side, the old man said. But if you look through from the other side, you will see deeper. Now close your eyes. John squeezed his eyes shut. The old rubber strap of the goggles pinched his ears and pulled his hair. Then he rested. Then they rested on his nose. Grandfather Kramer held his shoulders and pointed him so he was looking out the window. Why are you holding on to me? John asked. For safety, the old man answered. Do you feel ready? Yes. Okay, open your eyes, look deeper. John opened his eyes. Almost as soon as his eyes were open. he began to scream, but only a small sound came out of his mouth, as if he were breathless. His body went stiff, then suddenly fell back limp into Grandfather Kramer's waiting arms. The boy had fainted at his vision of the deeper world. Now, this is not just a fairy tale. Listen to what's written in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. This is the story about Elijah, and he's prophesying, uh, letting Israel know when the king of Aram is going to attack Israel. And so Israel is always one step ahead of the king of, of Aram. Uh, the king finds out about this and then sends a, uh, an army to go and kill Elisha. Elisha's servant is super afraid about what he sees going on. And listen to what Elisha says, uh, what he prays uh, at this moment. It's just incredible. Open, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see, the servant may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes, opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. There is way more going on in the spiritual world than what our eyes can see. There is a whole nother dimension of reality that is far deeper and more profound and I would say more exciting than anything that our eyes can see. And were we to just catch a glimpse of this, I would think that we would be like John Kramer, who would who would faint with being overwhelmed by both the magnificence as well as some of the horror of this other world so what's the reality what is really going on in our world right now 1st timothy 6 15 to 16 is a way to describe what the truth is about our reality this is how god is described there god is the blessed and only ruler the king of kings and Lord of lords, whom no eye has seen or can see. We see these two realities in this passage. We can't see God, but he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is ruling the world right now as we speak. This is incredible. There is a, and this is the title of the series, a hidden glory, God's hidden glory, that actively rules our world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that there's, a, there's another storyline, that there's a, there's a plot underneath what we can see with our eyes, and this plot is, is God's story about what he's doing in the world and in our lives? This is incredible. What a, uh, a magnificent thing that we need to grab a hold of, that our eyes, our physical eyes, cannot capture all that's going on. This is what we find in the book of Esther, that God was at work. We find already in chapter 2 that God takes a, uh, a Jewish slave and exalts her to be queen of the most powerful man in the whole world. This is incredible. How does this happen? And it's even through uh, means that are not great that this is a king who's, who's, uh, who gets his, uh, his attendants to round up a bunch of women to become his harem. I mean, this is not great stuff. And if you were to, to look at that, you would go, this is wrong. This should be, this should be stood against. Yet God is taking even what is, uh, what is, is, is morally perverse and is somehow using that to accomplish his will and purpose on the earth. I find this to be an incredible way of looking at the world around us, that we can live in reaction to what our eyes see and to think that we really get it. You know, oh, I know what's going on here, but do we really? That maybe there's something more grand and more profound than what we can understand or see with our eyes. Even Mordecai, already we see in the story, is being set up for something great. How? He simply overhears um, somebody plotting to kill the king. And that's going to work out later for him to come into an incredible place of prominence. But we'll get to that later. So what we need to know then is that God is at work in our world. Oh, could we know that in our hearts? God is at work. In your life in your world and when it looks as though everything is chaotic when the world looks hopeless when we feel overwhelmed by our circumstances there is another storyline and it's God's storyline and it and it's founded on one very simple principle God is sovereign Lord he is in charge he's not insecure things are not happening out of his understanding or will, he is accomplishing his purposes right now in the earth today. And this is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says that we're to live by faith and not by sight. That there's a whole other world going on. And the only way that we'll see that world is through eyes of faith. Father, show me. Put on those spirit goggles. As the magic bicycle describes, help me to see this other world. I can't see it. I need you to show me. And by faith, we're able to see what's really going on. So what would this uh, faith in God's sovereignty look like? If, if you and I, if the, if the veil was pulled back and we could see what was really going on, uh, what would that look like? Uh, how would that, that change how you and I would behave? Well, really, I don't know the answer to that. It, 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 sometimes it feels as though uh, we think that if we could see what, what God sees, that what that would do is it would give us kind of a, a, a concrete manual for how to live that as soon as we could, God would move outside of his hiddenness, that somehow everything in life would make sense and go, oh, I see, I need to do this, this, and this. I don't think that that's true. And I think it's actually a mark of the body of Christ that there's many ways to respond to this hidden glory. It's not just one way, that in the diversity of God's people, there's lots of appropriate faith-filled responses to how to deal with the world around us. It seems as though um, uh, what God cares about regarding our actions is more about why we do something than exactly what we do. Now, of course, when it comes to to blatant sin, there's certain boundaries around that. But inside uh, the uh, morality, there's lots of ways to respond to what we see the Spirit of God doing on the earth today. And that why we do something is much more important than what we do. So if we do things because we're afraid, we feel as though the world is out of control, I'm feeling uh, uh, helpless and confused and so I just you know I retreat or I'm feeling angry and I, I rise up. Whatever we're doing It's more important about why we do those things than about exactly what we do. And if we're doing it out of fear and anxiety, if we're doing it out of a heart that doesn't believe, then those actions are not good actions. But we could do those exact same things out of an expression of our faith in God, and now that's exactly what should be done. It matters more about why we do something than what we do. And why we do something is because we believe in a sovereign God who's ruling the world, and we get to live in cooperation with who he is. In conclusion, our greatest danger is to be blinded by what we see. This is our greatest danger, is that you and I can be blind simply by what we see with their physical eyes. It looks sometimes to be so real, so concrete, that we go, that's all there is. Oh, that God would give us eyes to look deeper. This is my prayer for us. Father, in this time, give us eyes to look deeper. When you look at the protests that are happening around us today, that many of us have participated in, what do you see going on there? What do you see? And if all you can see is what your eyes see, I encourage you to look deeper into this moment of human history and ask what the Spirit of God is doing in this moment and cooperate with him. During this pandemic, we're being told that this is going to go on for a while. That until they get a vaccine, it's probably going to be true that uh, we're not going to be able to meet as a church uh, altogether. Uh, it, it, it might last for, for many, many months. And and what's going on here? Is uh, is the world, is the church to kind of shrink back and hunker down and just kind of survive this moment or is there something greater going on Wow! i just want to say just uh it's a little bit off topic but i just want to say we you'll see in the um in the weekly bulletin that we send out that uh that our finances came in for the for the month of may and to see uh, the generosity of of you of our church community in this time, it's just overwhelming. It, it, it builds my uh, my heart with faith to watch your faith in action, and to see that even in a time such as this, that you're walking in generosity. This is just overwhelming to me. And then we had a we had a meeting a, a few days ago, and we were we were talking to the uh, to what we're calling our, our council. And this is kind of people who are, who are standing in different areas of the church to kind of hear what the Spirit of God is, is saying through our people in this time. And it was so encouraging to, to hear, I think, God uh, speaking through his people that, uh, that this is a time, uh, perhaps like no other time in the history of our church, where the things that we have dreamed of are becoming a reality we've always longed to be a discipleship movement a people movement where we invest in people who invest in people who invest in others and we call this a discipleship movement and uh, and we see that that while Sunday mornings are becoming simplified it's actually freeing up um, space in our mind and even physical time it, it's actually uh, helping us focus on what what really is at the center of our church and it's our small groups our d groups and so we're seeing that that is the place in our church right now that is having the most life and of course it would we can only meet in small groups and even that mostly on zoom or facetime or whatever you use and so uh, what if god is actually using this time in our church to to answer our prayers that we've always wanted to be a community that deeply cares for people, that doesn't just run big events, but that is invested in other people's lives, and that we get to care for people there, and that we get to encourage them to care for others in the same way. That what if this is a time of clarity for us? Like, oh, I just long for us to see this moment through eyes of faith. God is at work. He is a sovereign God he knew that this pandemic was coming he knew of the atrocities that were going to happen at the at the hands of certain uh, uh, police officers he knew that that's going on and he's he's accomplishing something on the earth today if we have eyes to see and so I want to pray for us right now that God would show us first who he is, that at this moment he is sovereign Lord and that he would, we would be able to then have eyes of faith to know how to practically respond to who he is in this time. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are, that you are mighty God, King of kings, Lord of lords, we can't see you. Your magnificence uh, is, uh, is too great for our eyes to comprehend. But we confess this morning who you are. And I pray that as we, as, we, as we rest in who you are, as we trust in who you are, as we put our confidence in who you are, that you would show us how to respond to the world around us in a time such as this? Whether it's in our workplace or in our, our, our family and where we feel like, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck with a group of people and, and maybe tensions are rising for some. How do we respond to who you are in our practical world? Show us what to do. Show us how to behave. Because we know who we serve, and who is ruling the world. So we declare this morning that our confidence is in you, and we want to be a people who live in response to who you are. We love you, Lord, and we worship you in your hidden glory.